My name is uh, Sean Cordell, and I am um, a follower of Jesus, and my life has been changed by him, and I have a sweet wife. We've been married for 24 years, and I got four kids, one that's 20, one 18, one 14, and one 11. So uh, I pastor Treasuring Christ Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And, but I actually was born in Lexington, Kentucky, St. Joe's Hospital. That's right, yep. I, I, notice, I notice a little more excitement about that than when I was called a Duke fan earlier. Um, I, I actually can uh, celebrate a lot of different teams, which usually gets me uh, beat up by my children. They call me a bandwagoner, you know. Uh, so anyway, I, I can root for a lot of different people and enjoy it. So. I am thrilled to be able to be here with you. It is an honor, and I just want to stop and to pray and to uh, ask for the Lord's continued mercy upon us, and then we'll continue to dive right in, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as was prayed earlier, I want to say out loud again, you are the wonderful counselor. You are Almighty God. You are Everlasting Father. You are our Prince of Peace. You came to us when we could not, cannot save or change ourselves. We cannot make ourselves new. And so in this moment, I just ask that a fresh wind of your Holy Spirit would sweep over us in a powerful and precious way. Those words that were prayed over me this morning, I pray right now the truth, the confidence that your sheep will hear your voice and they will follow. God, you have made us your children. And our ears need to be opened our hearts are here saying we want to hear your voice and we believe the promise that you are the good shepherd we just want to hear from you our distractions can interrupt you the text messages that we might get our phones can interrupt you the busyness of our lives can interrupt you but father right now in this precious moment we just want to be still and stop interrupting and start listening and so by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come? Open our hearts, open our ears to hear your voice. And we believe you will speak. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to share for just a little bit. And actually, Tim started us in the deep end of the pool. And... I don't know if it's landed on you yet, and it might not land on you for years to come, but what was just given to you is a gift of unimaginable riches. What was just given to you was beautiful. It was like a treasure chest was just opened, and it was all dumped in your lap. And sometimes that can be a little overwhelming. What do I do with all of that? But it was a gift. And so one thing that I want to do is as we dove right into the deep end of the pool, I mean, you could, I could feel it subjectively. Like <laughs> I ran this morning at Western Kentucky. I now know why they're called the Hilltoppers. That was intense. And so I get back to the hotel, you know, and I run over here and I sit down and Tim dives in and it was, it was like disorienting a little bit, right? It was like, okay, we're going at it, aren't we? We're just going to dive into the depths of my soul in five minutes. Here we go. And so that's where I felt like we were and it was wonderful. What I want to do is to zoom out a little bit and to say, you were in the deep end of the pool pretty quickly. There is a pool. There's boundaries. What in the world are we doing right now? And I think there are some words that could, we could put on our aim for this moment. We've, we've talked about gospel application. I think there are other words and phrases that describe what we are doing. It would be growing as a follower of Jesus. It might be called sanctification. It is 
this idea of how do we grow to look more like Christ, to be more satisfied in Jesus. Another phrase could be biblical change. How can we change? And this is, this is what we're talking about. And change necessarily requires that the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, is the key transformative agent that comes in and changes our heart. We need the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. When I was in college, what that meant to me was, can you, do you know the Romans road? Do you know how to tell somebody they're lost in their sin and that Jesus came and stood in their place and that he rose from the dead and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and that all things are secure? One day he's going to come back and I'm going to be with him. And if I trust in him, repent of my sins, trust in him, I can be his child. Then I close that book and put it on a shelf and then I got to the real things of Christianity. You start studying all these systematic things and you start... And what we want to say is, that's wrong. The book of the gospel, that message is right, but you'll never get over that message. You don't ever close the book, you don't ever put it on the shelf, it's always open. That all these other wonderful things that we talk about, systematic theology and all the pointers in church history and all the things that are kind of glamorized sometimes as ways to grow in our in our knowledge of Christ, all of it is pointing you back to the gospel. Just different phrases and different ideas and different ways to communicate and help you to mind the depths of the scriptures, but it is nothing short of the gospel is necessary for biblical change. So what we're talking about is how do we grow to look more like Jesus? How can we be changed by the gospel? Now, as I talk, it's going to feel a little more kind of workshop-ish, you know, a little bit more kind of walking through um, points and stuff like that. Um, so I do want to encourage you to write some things down, but also remind you that we are going to take some time for Q&A. So, you know, something comes to your mind, you got a question, write it down so you don't forget it. If your mind's anything like mine, I try to hold on to it, and then boom, it just left. So write it down, and then we'll talk about some things here in a little bit. But I want to talk about biblical change as proactive and reactive. Biblical change is proactive and reactive. Reactive in the sense of, man, I just blew up at that person. I just got really angry in my heart. What in the world is going on? That's reactive. How do I deal with that emotion, that, those issues? We're going to talk about that in a second. Proactive is, what do I do in everyday life to be what Jesus was saying in Luke 19, to be faithful in the small things? To be faithful in what might be called the normal means of grace that God uses to change my heart day by day, sometimes imperceptibly, but he uses those normal things proactively. So in my church, we usually talk about biblical change this way. Biblical change is more about who we pursue than what we avoid. I'll say it again. Biblical change is more about who we pursue than what we avoid. Now that's coming in from a context. Here's why we say that. It's because whenever you're arguing for something, you're guarding against something else. Here's my journey. Grew up in a Southern Baptist church in Knoxville, Tennessee. That's where we moved when I was six months old from Lexington, Kentucky to Knoxville, Tennessee and grew up there. Please don't hate me. You know, I was a product of my culture. We do like the volunteers. <laughs> just waiting on the stones. Your ears just closed. You can't hear another thing. I get it. I get it. I rooted for Kentucky basketball for a long time because, you know, it's kind of how it worked. You know, Tennessee never had a basketball team. You know, sadly, you guys didn't have a football team for the longest time. And things, you know, things are changing on both ends. So anyway, story closed. Now, my journey growing, growing up in a Southern Baptist church was Biblical change was about two things. Stop doing bad things and show me your good things. And so this was the culture in which I grew up. And what was talked about was what I needed to avoid. That was the measure of my holiness. And some of those things that I needed to stop doing were good things. I needed to stop doing them, you know. 
Don't sleep around. Don't get drunk. You know, don't have a foul mouth. Those things were helpful and good, you know. Showed self-control and other things, you know, like, then secondary things became some rules, you know, like what you could watch or don't watch and, and, you know, how you spend your time and you better be there on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening, you know, there was just, there was, and if you don't, you know, you better question where you are with the Lord. So secondary things became laws and so now all of a sudden the whole idea of trying to grow to look like Jesus was just trying to avoid all the bad things and then make sure that I showed everybody my performance. No exaggeration, you're sitting in the pews at, in, my, in the church I grew up in, and there's an envelope. And that envelope, you pull it out, it's a giving envelope, and on the envelope there are five boxes that you can check. I attended Sunday school. I read my Bible daily. I memorized scripture. I came to corporate worship. I'm giving. And you had that opportunity every Sunday to check the box as you then put money in the envelope and put your name on it and put it in the basket. And that was a way to reflect whether you were holy, whether you really were looking like Jesus. And here's what it does. It makes you hide the real you. It makes you hide the real you. Because a gospel culture is a culture where, as Tim was describing, you can be honest about your failures and still be loved. A legalistic culture is you are loved if you meet these certain standards. You will be accepted. You'll be upper tier. You will be varsity Christianity. Nobody wants to be on the JV team or riding the pine. You know, you don't want to sit on the bench. This is how you do it. You show everyone your righteousness. And so we just want to say, no way. That is not the biblical picture of change. Here's a phrase. Tim has given you a lot of helpful phrases. What do you do when you're hooked? Shamed people shame. Issue of contrast and comparison. These these things are helpful in trying to apply the gospel. Here's another one. We do not live for justification, but from justification. I don't do good things in order to be accepted, I do it because I am accepted. I don't love someone in order to receive the embrace of God. I love someone because I have the embrace of God. Loved people love people. You need to take that to the bank. 1 John 4.19 We love because what? He first loved us. Loved people love people. we got to say it over and over. And those are some of the things that Tim was just laying to bear. When you know you are loved, the defenses can be put down. When you know you are loved, you don't have to check all the boxes to be loved. When you know you are loved, you actually don't stop growing in holiness you feel the freedom to walk forward in holiness it is the power you need for salvation so when we say biblical change is more about who we pursue than what we avoid yes the bible is filled with ideas of stop refrain from sexual immorality right don't lie don't be jealous these things that can hurt the soul But the thrust, the emphasis of the scriptures is more about putting on than putting off. It's more about going after Christ. Because here's the image is if we're always looking behind us, trying to avoid things, if I'm walking my Christian life backwards, what's going to happen? 
I'm going to run into this keyboard. Like, I'm going to trip and fall. Like, it's not the way we're meant to go. We're meant to turn and look to Jesus. That's literally what repentance is. It is not staring at the wrong way, staring at sin. It is turning and saying, there is a superior treasure. His name is Christ. He has come to die for us. He loves us. We are accepted in Him. Let's walk towards Him. It's exactly what Tim did at the very beginning from Psalm 27. Seek my face. That's biblical change. Hebrews chapter 12 says, looking unto Jesus. This is biblical change. That's how Charles Spurgeon was saved. He talks about sitting in a church where he said, his, his words, the preacher was stupid. He said, it's just like, this guy did not know what he was doing. And he was just like, but he just kept preaching, look unto Jesus. You don't have to be smart to look under Jesus. Just look. You don't have to be wealthy to look under Jesus. Just look. Just look to Jesus. We can all look to Jesus. What does it mean if you look to Jesus? It means you're not looking to yourself. Look unto Jesus and you will be saved. What does it say? You'll be saved. You'll be rescued. Look to Jesus. This is biblical change. It's more about who we pursue than what we avoid. And you know as well as I do. It's the allure of what else I look at that tempts me to not walk towards Jesus, but walk towards this other thing. And so the image of looking is a beautiful image. Biblical change is more about who we pursue than what we avoid. Yes, we must avoid, but we must pursue. And so when I say that biblical change is both proactive and reactive, you know these kind of normal means of grace that God gives us to be proactive in our biblical change. What might be the first one that comes to mind? If you want to walk with Jesus, say again. Read the Bible. Exactly. One of the best books on biblical change, I highly recommend it. It's a book called Deeper by Dane Ortland. And in chapter 8 of that book, he, he talks about reading the Bible and prayer as the image is breathing, that reading the Bible is inhaling and prayer is exhaling. I found it to be a really helpful image because most of the time when I was encouraged to read my Bible, it was once it was the checklist and two, it was more about shaming me about how much I didn't do it, right? And so then, yeah, I better do it, you know, because I don't want to be shamed in front of others. It was totally a performance gig. But if I come to you and you're holding your breath, and you're literally turning blue. And I come to you and I say, breathe. You would never say, you legalist, stop commanding me. You would be like, oh, I can breathe. Okay, that's a good thing. You know, I'm no longer blue. Like, I'm not going to pass out. Like, okay, this is good. This is biblical faithfulness to the word and prayer. It's, it's like breathing. It's that necessary. The, as Dane Ortland calls it, it's the oxygenating of the soul. It's your mind is clearer when you're breathing, you know. The, the heart races in anxiety. So what, what's a big word these days? Mindfulness. You know, you sit and you calm down and you breathe. That kind of, all of this is this biblical image of the importance of the word and prayer. It's proactive biblical change. And so... There is a reason why the scriptures just continue to say, delight in the word of the Lord. De spend time in the word, morning and eat. There's just these images regularly of the importance of the word and prayer. There's another area where there's some common grace, these normal means of grace, and it's with the people of God. Once again, church gathering can be presented as, you know, this legalistic duty. Here, here's a, here's a, you need to be able to understand the difference between healthy laws and legalism. Legalism is an issue of the heart, which means you're doing it in order to be accepted. Obeying biblical commands is, I am accepted, and therefore I come. God tells me the people of God is where I'm going to grow to look more like Jesus. Bible reading is not optional. 
prayer is not optional and gathering with God's people is not optional. It's the context in which we grow to look more like Christ. It's His glorious means of grace. Like, literally, I could go through so many things about the gathering with God's people where God promises to uniquely be in that gathering of God's people. It's very common in the college world to make the college ministry your church rather than the people of God your church. And it's just like there is a uniqueness to the gathering of the people of God. Like it even says in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus is the worship leader. So you might have somebody that's leading up here, but you need to know the primary worship leader is the living Christ in the presence of the gathered people of God. There, there's just, there's so many, it almost feels like that image with, um, in the book of, uh, what is it, First Kings, it just came to me, um, help me, it is not Elijah, but Elisha. Elisha, and when he was just like, this servant of God was just nervous, and he was like, we're going to get crushed by these enemies, and Elisha was just like, oh God, open his eyes to see what's around here. And then all of a sudden you look on the mountain and it is covered and filled with the angels of the Lord and the mighty army is just like, oh, okay. That's what's happening on Sunday mornings. It's just like if God would like pull back the veil a little bit and open the eyes, it would be like, oh, the living God of the universe is right here and he delights in me and he is working for me. Like, so God has proactive means to help us look more like Jesus. That's the point. Bible reading, prayer, gathering with the people of God, and studying God's Word in more in-depth. Like, Tim did not, he was not able to share with us those things simply by spending about five minutes reading one page of Scripture. Like, this is a lifelong journey. And I can tell you, when I was in school, There were times I literally felt like the dumbest person in the room. No exaggeration. And I would go home and I would cry because I did not understand what they were talking about biblically. And you have a choice to make. Like, okay, if I'm the dumbest person in the room and I don't get it, they all seem to get it, I don't get it, then I'm just checking out. I'm going to spend more time watching TV or I'm going to accent the things that I'm good at, you know, or whatever. I'm just going to go over here. And I just encourage you that this growth in gospel grace, it takes energy, it takes effort, but it is worth every ounce of it. This knowledge doesn't just come by attending one seminar on a Saturday. But here's what I do know, is your presence shows a humility and God promises to give grace. He's going to give you grace for being here. He's going to take you one step deeper into the love of God, and he's going to make you more like his son. So proactive means of grace. The other one I think I would be remiss if I didn't say is God has also given us, if he's loved us, he's given us the opportunity to love others. You actually become more like Jesus as you talk about his love. As you extend his love to other people, that's loving the church, that's loving lost people. These are the normal means of grace that helps us look more like Jesus. Now, I want to take one brief segment here to talk about what I think is a a regular barrier in my life and in the lives of others when it comes to biblical change. So, biblical change is proactive and reactive. Proactive in that we, these are the things that we can do to walk in the normal means of grace to look like Jesus. Reactive is what do we do when we, we've blown up, we get anxious, we're in despair. How do we deal with that? We're going to get there, but now there's a suture. There's a bridge between this. For me, the emphasis of my Christian walk went from legalism into understanding the wonders of the cross in this way that Jesus stood in my place and I just began to study and look at at the sovereignty of God and how he would stand in my place he took my sin upon his shoulders he died the death that I deserved and 
every ounce of my past, present, and future were placed upon Him, and I can be forgiven and set free. And when, when you battle with legalism, then it's almost too good to be true. You still want to smuggle in your works, and then you just keep reflecting on, no, that's why He came. He did it all because you couldn't do it all. The Old Testament continues to tell you that we are unable, unable to present the perfect righteousness that is required that's why jesus came and so i just continued to look constantly upon the beauty of the savior and how he did what i couldn't do jesus in my place but i tell you there's been another shift for me another shift for me as i look at the cross and it is that he not only was in my place but he is right now by the power of the holy spirit he is for me he's for me because what it's hard to sometimes believe when you're battling with legalism is that the only way you got acceptance in the past was to perform a certain way that's what made people for you but if you got any spiritual pulse at all you're really more aware of where you fall short and it just overwhelms you and so I had to be regularly convinced that my God was for me. I still do. My weakest moments, I slide into, He'll only be for me if I'm not anxious, if I'm not in despair, if I say the right thing, if I don't talk too much. You know, preachers have that problem. If I, you know, you just like you beat yourself up about all these weaknesses. I just want to tell you that God is for you. And I, I'm going to retread a little ground. If you, Some of you were here yesterday, but I think it's helpful. I want to look at Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, 13 has been a crucial passage in my journey for helping me understand that God is for me. He's for me. And I think this is a, a beautiful, uh, helpful bridge to... to Meditate, reflect on the for usness of Jesus. So, the passage reads this way May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I would read that verse and say, He will fill me if I get my act together. He will fill me if I improve in my performance. And gospel application comes to save me from that thinking to say, that's why Jesus came. He performed perfectly the eyes and the gaze upon our filling, empowering, abounding love God is upon His Son. And so I get it all by faith in Him. Now, as we look at that verse, may the God of hope, it's the God we set our hope upon, it's the God that's worthy of our hope, it's the God who sent His Son so that we know that death did not win, Satan did not win, sin did not win, there's hope. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing. I mean, if I'm asking for a show of hands, who wants joy, who wants peace, we're all there. And then if I'm asking for a show of hands, do you have it all the time? We'd be like, ain't no way. You know, it's like joy, opposite of joy would be kind of anger, frustration, you know, discontentment. And so we're not just asking for the absence of those things. We're asking for the presence of the delight and the joy. And then you look at peace. What's the opposite of peace? You've got anxiety and fear. We're not just asking for the absence of that, which although that would be kind of good to have the absence of anxiety and fear that paralyzes us. We're asking for the presence of his peace, this contentment, this rest. And then he says in the passage, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in in believing by believing it's a present tense verb you can kind of underline it it's this need to continually believe and so i just want to ask the question like what are you continually believing at that moment and i think really helpful things are spatial images to help you reflect on what you can believe in that moment that you're longing for peace you're longing for joy here's the spatial image god is with us 
He's gone before us. He is in us, and He goes ahead of us. Okay? God is with us. He has gone before us. He is inside of us, and He goes ahead of us. Whenever I'm bogged down in anxiety or despair or struggles, these spatial images are helpful to pull me up out of the cloudy thinking. No, God is with me right now. God has gone before me. He is inside of me. And He has gone ahead of me. Now, I just want to focus in briefly on one of those images because this is, I think, speaking primarily to the forestness of Jesus. Is that Christ has given us His Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, it says in Romans 8. To live and to dwell inside of us. It's the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of you, Romans 8, 11. And so, here's, what I, here's the gift I want to give you so that you can meditate and reflect on it. I do have some pictures for us, which we need about now because you've taken in a lot of information. Okay? So, in Psalm 1, it says... That you meditate on the Word of God day and night, you'll be like a tree planted by, anybody know the image? Streams of water. Okay, here's an image here. Tree planted by streams of water. Here's the question. Does the water give to the tree or does the tree give to the water? Not a trick question. Water gives to the tree. Yes. So the tree's role could be described with one word as to receive the water this is our role we are to receive the love of God for us to receive the constant present power of God for us in salvation now here's where we kind of we struggle like okay next picture this is how we feel emotionally there's parts of us that feel like really good and there are other parts of us that feel really, we would talk about, I'm spiritually dry, right? You've used that phrase before about your life. I'm spiritually dry. It means like you've opened the Bible and it's not all registered. And you know, it's just like, feels like just words on a page. And so what do we do when we're like this? What do we do when we don't have joy and peace? It feels like part of us is dying inside. Well, coming from that legalistic background, I would say I'm probably feeling that way because of not performing well enough, not reading enough, not praying enough, not being kind enough because I got angry at my wife, because I was short with my children, because I preached too long on Sunday, because I wasn't present for this family in the church, and, and the list can just go of all the ways that I rehearsed that I fell short. And that's my solution sometimes to why I'm dry. I want to give a different image for you. Dane Ortland in his book, he says that those things, any sin that we commit, can make us miserable, but they will never stop us from experiencing the love of God. His love does not stop. So, but here's what we're tempted to say, okay, if we're not going to put the onus on us, like we're the problem, then sometimes we're tempted to put it on God. God is just not going to supply what I need. He's just not, he's not present sometimes we'll think, or he's all powerful, but he's not going to use that power for me. And so now all of a sudden we put it on God. And so our image of God as a, as a river or as, a, as, as, as water to give to the tree looks a little more like this. That's our image of kind of God who is to supply. So in the Old Testament, the river is an image of life. Seas and oceans are an image of judgment for the most part. And so God is compared to a river. And it says in John chapter 4, John chapter 7, that any of us thirst, come to me, Jesus says, and in you will spring up a well of water to eternal life. And he says, and this he said about the Spirit of God. 
So he's telling us that the Spirit inside of us is like a river. But is this your image of the river? That he's short on supply. I want to give you a new image. The new image is this next one. This is the Spirit of God. He's never short on supply. He's never running dry. He is always fully loving you. His love at Calvary did not slowly trickle down to where he's a drying stream. His love at the apex of sending his only son, crushing his only son, the love of Christ for you, the love of the Spirit for you, the love of the Trinitarian God for you is as full now as it was then. We will never be able to exhaust and mind the depths of God's love for us, we will always sell it short. And I just want some type of image to help you know that the Spirit of God who lives inside of you is full like a mighty rushing river to give you everything that you need every single moment of every single day. And when you are convinced that He is with you, He went before you on the cross, so that you don't have to live for justification, but from it. You don't have to live for acceptance, but from acceptance. And when you know that He is inside of you, fully supplying you with everything you need, then when you look ahead at the future, you need not fear. Because that same God who is sovereign and in control, He is in control, not as a cold dictator, but He is in control as a loving Father. You will have all the supply you need. This is the suture for biblical change. This is when you sit down at the Bible, you have to remember and constantly remind yourself, He is here. This is literally how I begin many of my prayers. Father, I'm your child. You promise you love me. You are here right now. When that seeps down into your heart, things will be different. So what do we do now, friends? Proactive versus reactive. Biblical change is more about who we pursue than what we avoid. I just want you to listen to the words of Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. What are you going to continue to believe? He's with you. He's gone before you, he's in you, and he goes ahead of you. Continue to rehearse that so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will continue to abound in hope. Hope is possible for you to live day after day. And so now I want to just give you, in a very kind of shortened version, I want to give you a process for reactive change. Okay? This is it. Take about 10 minutes and then... We're going to uh, stop for a break. A process for reactive change. There are three steps. Step one, own it and examine it. Step one, own it and examine it. Step two, cross-examine it. Intentional play on words. Step three, act in God's supply. Step one, own it and examine it. Step two, cross-examine it. Step three, act in God's supply. Now, a couple of preemptive comments. One is that this process is not meant to be a math formula, even though I just gave you numbers. <laughs> I really like to thrive on, okay, do this, and then do this, and then do this. Thank you for the very clear process. This is, okay, the Christian walk is messy, okay? But I'm trying to give you some sense of mental hangers so that you can kind of walk through this when our emotions are all over the place. What's the it? I just said own it and examine it. <laughs> I said, cross-examine it. You know, then acting God's, what's the it? It is all the emotion, all the cravings, all the things that when we're all up in ourselves, 
all the things things when you're angry or anxious or you're in despair or sadness when you're feeling lonely or hurt you're walking in guilt or shame or you have joy and you have peace the first step in biblical change is acknowledging that something's there I mean I don't know about you but I literally can wake up in the morning and just feel off that's how I would you know describe it I don't try to put words on it I just I, I feel horrible and it literally I could feel really great the day before it's inexplicable you wake up why do I feel the way I feel what I'm trying to help you do is Ed Welch says this first step could be said could be called find words and speak words when we don't acknowledge that we are shackled we will never seek deliverance from the shackles if you never say I have chains around my wrist you will not seek to get the chains off you'll just walk around like this and be like man my wrist hurt I don't know what in the world's going on you know this is the biblical change it begins half of the battle is saying I have a problem or for me I am anxious to put a word on it you usually don't think that way you just I feel rotten or you're blowing up at everybody around you and you haven't even like you haven't even put words to it you're just like and you know deep down as Tim talked about you know deep down you're off you're short but if you know you're loved the journey begins in prayer not a math formula in prayer who are you owning it to before you ever own it to somebody else you've got to own it yourself to the Lord that's what a lament is that's what prayer it, it's taking all of these feelings and taking it vertical and so, God, I'm, I'm anxious right now. It takes a lot of courage to say some of those words. I am deeply sad right now. I am deeply hurt by that, what somebody said. So it's own it and examine it. The word that comes to mind is why. <laughs> so if you're like, okay, somebody just cut you off while you're driving. Oh, really? That's how it's going to be. I'll show you. Up in front, get in front, slow down. How do you like that? But okay. Okay, I'm angry right now. Why? That's the examinant question. Why? And the freedom in that examinant moment is that usually it won't start off very holy, which is like, because they just cut me off, hello. You know, these are the kind of conversations I'm having. It's really more with myself. You know, it's it's it takes a while for it to bend vertically you know it's just like because you know I didn't deserve that is why you know and but when if God would give you an awareness okay I was just unreasonably angry right there then all of a sudden that awareness allows you to take that why and bend it vertically why God was I so angry felt like I deserved better and then it's just like, okay, slow down here. What in the world? And what God does, just as this entire process, these three steps, all of it is prayer. All of it is just trying to get your heart to find words and speak words. Who are you speaking the words to? You're speaking them to the Lord. There's also this, this kind of flow, ebb and flow of confession of sin and confession of faith. And it's not like that fits into one of these steps. It's just what God does. Whenever you go vertically, He just begins to expose things. Whenever you, like, literally, I, I have found, because I have some attention issues sometimes, just like, what I have found to help me is outlouding my prayers. Or when I'm alone writing down my prayers, I, I need some type of expression of that because I can get so distracted. Next thing I know, Tim was real, I mean, like, I'm really impressed because Tim was like, I, I feel like I've got to pinch myself after like two or three minutes. Mine's like 15. You know, it's just like, I'm like, 
why in the world, how did I just lose 20 minutes? You know, like, good night. I'm, I'm all up in this conversation about, you know, my feelings or about this conversation that I wish I could have had. When he says, pinch yourself, that's owning it. That's exactly, like, I'm aware now that something's off. Own it and examine it. Take it to the Lord. And when you do, he'll, he'll begin to expose things. He, he just will. And so now what we do is step two is cross-examine it. And this is where you can take everything that Tim did for us in that first hour and you can lay that bucket right here in, in step two. It's just multiple ways, multiple examples, multiple hangers or phrases that can help get your mind Ed Welch says, if the first step is find words, speak words, the second step is listen to the Lord. So we've spoken our words, God, I am anxious. I am angry. I am sad. God, would you please help me to think rightly about what's going on here? I want to listen to what you say about those emotions, about my situation. We're now cross-examining it. You know how it is in a courtroom, right? <laughs> it's like the pers first person that examined it, it's just like, case closed. That was so compelling. And then, you know, you watch the shows or you're in a courtroom, and then the other attorney comes in, and it's just like, whoa, hadn't thought about it that way. And now it looks different, you know? And that's what is happening when you allow the gospel, God's word, to speak into your situation. It's like, oh, there's a different way to look at this. And I can just tell you, that well will be dry without the proactive work. Because when I'm all up in myself, I can tell you why I'm sad, but I just can't like get to a spot where, tell me what God says about, like I've got to have handles, I've got to have the hard work of overtime. God, would you please help me, help me. Phrases like, he's not like that. Every disappointment, there's satisfaction in Jesus. I tell you, I do have an anxiety issue, not like clinically diagnosed. I'm just more aware of my heart than anything. And it's just like I battle with fear and anxiety. And so sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night, like three in the morning, middle of the night, you know, and I'm just like, goodness, what is going on? And now I have, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like you wake up at 3 a.m. and it's like, okay, I, I'm, I've been here before, and this usually means I'm up from here forward. So what do you do? And then usually I'm, I'm, I'm aware enough now that I'm able to say I'm anxious about this, but all it does is it just like cycles and spirals. Why am I anxious? Well, I, I can think on the why forever, you know. I can think on the why forever, which is, you know, I don't know the future, and how do I know this isn't going to come out, and what about my marriage, or what about my kids, or what if they don't do this? You know, we can think on the why forever. What are you going to do at 3 a.m. <laughs> when you're crazy sleepy, your brain ain't working for nothing? What do you do in those moments? You've got to have phrases, or you have to have biblical verses that are just like, somebody wakes you up at 3 a.m., you can go there. What's your 3 a.m. verse? For me, <laughs> and this is obnoxious, but it's, I can stay up so long, I needed it to be long. I have the word scriptures, and every letter reminds me of a passage. I know that's obnoxious. It's not recommendable for many people, okay? <laughs> I just know my own weaknesses. It took some time, but scriptures is what I do laying in bed at 3 a.m. to try to Help myself in anxiety. S, satisfy me early in the morning with your steadfast love that I might rejoice and be glad all my days. God, only you can satisfy me. C, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will are. I'll give you rest for your soul. God, help me. I need rest for my soul. I incline my heart away from selfish gain and towards your word. Incline my heart to your word and away from selfish gain. P, God has granted to me everything I need for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1. Through the knowledge of his son in his great and precious promises. P, he's promised me that he's going to be with me. 
T. Just depends on where I am. If I'm complaining, I'll use a Thanksgiving verse there. Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God for me in Christ Jesus. But many times I'm just spiritually thirsty. So I'll quote one of those verses in John 4 when he says, Are you thirsty? Come to me. You will never thirst again. You, oh God, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. My heart is all over the place. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. R, E, and S, R, Psalm 40. The Lord is in my midst. He's like a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Gladness is possible at 3 a.m. in the morning, even when you're anxious. Oh God, make me glad in you. E, Jesus says in John 13, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Your love, that river that makes me glad, it's not going to run dry. He's going to love me to the end. And S is that image of supply. You will always supply me with everything I need. Dear friends, whatever it is, we need some help to cross-examine our hearts with the Scriptures so that we can find peace in the midst of anxiety. We can find a sense of trusting that God will make wrongs right when we're angry. When we're sad, we can believe that He is better and He is with us and He is for us. We've got to cross-examine it. But then we, then we need to act. We can't just, we should not be just all up in our feelings all the time. That's not helpful. We've got to act. We've got to walk in love. That's the third step. We must act, but we act with a freedom. Ed Welch says, He doesn't call you to fix your past or control your future. He's done all of that. So you act in love. You act in love. You don't have to act to be loved. You're already loved. You act in love. What is the most loving thing for my roommate? What is the most loving thing for my spouse? What is the most loving thing for my kids? What's the most loving thing for that church member? You walk in love. But remember, the for-usness of Jesus. You will never walk without His supply. He's a mighty rushing river, giving you everything you need. So you don't walk in order to be accepted. You walk because you are. And so, friends, I pray that those three steps, own it and examine it, cross-examine it, and then act in His supply are helpful. And throughout that whole process, there'll be a time when you confess sin and a time when you confess that He is good. He is faithful. You confess faith. That's biblical change. It's not a formula. It's a relationship with Jesus. And I commend it to you.